All right, it's been a couple of weeks. We had last week off. The week before that, we looked at the Eastern Church. And the week before that, we got up to the papacy or the papacy. We're going to do a quick review of the papacy, and then we're going to jump straight in to basically the middle part of the Middle Ages. All righty? So we're going to go up to about 1,200 today. We're going to start with Charlemagne and go to about 1,200, so 800 to 1,200. All righty? Any questions from last time, though? Or any other questions? Okay, I remember. That makes two of us. So, all right. Okay. So when we left off talking the Western church, we just kind of started talking about the papacy. That's kind of where the word originated. That basically any bishop of understanding or of, of prestige at one time was called the pope. Uh, it wasn't really until the Western church hijacked the word that uh, now we know popes are in Rome. Right? That's how that came to be. Uh, the first pope in the true sense was Leo the uh, First, And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of bring us up to that, and then we're going to start looking really at Gregory the Great, and then we're going to move forward, jump straight into Charlemagne. Okay? So just listen to this. Uh, we covered this the last time, so this is kind of review, right? But with Leo's death in 8461, there was growing tensions between the West and the East. Do we have a picture of Leo? There he is, right? Okay. His feast date is November 10th, so we'll throw a party that day, okay? Uh, but tensions grew between the West and the East, and a schism, a smaller one, develops between Rome and Constantinople to make matters worse. Worse, the Ostrogoths, who were Aryans, invade the Italian peninsula, right? Doing so causes tension between them and the populace of the Italian peninsula. That makes sense, right? But they set up their own pope, and now there are two popes in Rome. An Arian, because the Ostrogoths are Arian in their Christology, and then a Nicene Orthodox pope, right? So... This causes literal riots in the streets of Rome. They don't like the fact that there are two popes, so the people riot, right? Because they don't have any television and they don't have anything better else to do other than literally riot in the streets. This causes violence. They're killing each other, right? Because that's what you do is you just, you know, I don't like you, so I'm going to wipe you out, okay? Uh, there are violent armed clashes between the supporters of the popes. And after a series of synods, the matter is resolved and a new pope is elected. But this time it's chosen by Constantinople as opposed to the populace of Rome. Now, why would Constantinople at this time choose the pope in Rome? Where's the seat of power still? It's in Constantinople, right? Okay. Uh, even though the church has not split, but the empire has split, right? The emperor is still in Constantinople. And starting with Constantine, what does the emperor consider himself? Bishop of bishops. So guess who gets to say, we're choosing whoever the pope is? Constantinople, right? Guess how Rome felt about that? My guess is they didn't like that idea, but that's okay. Right? At least it stops the violent armed clashes and things go back to normal. They elect a, or Constantinople sets a Nicene Orthodox Pope 
in Rome, right? Uh, then the Lombards invade, right? So we had the Ostrogoths, now we have the Lombards. They invade the Italian peninsula. And this time, Constantinople is unable to provide the necessary defense, and Rome was left to fend for herself. So the pope at that time, his name is Pelagius II, he buys off the Lombards. He just takes a bunch of gold and says, if you guys don't attack Rome, or at least don't sack it, here's a bunch of gold, just go away. Right? So what do the Lombards do? They go, you got it. That's what we were here for anyway. We were just going to take your gold, probably burn a few buildings, kill a bunch of people, but hey, you know, you just kind of took all the fun out of it, but at least we get our gold. Right? Right? Pelagius II also appeals to the Franks. Now remember we talked about the Franks. Right? From them we get the country of France. Right? So Pelagius II goes to the Franks and says, hey, can you help get these Lombards off our back? And the Franks go, okay, we'll try what we see what we can do. Right? They kind of put forth some effort, right? And that helps drive the Lombards eventually out of the Italian peninsula. But the important thing is this, is that by Pelagius II going to the Franks and asking for help, what he's doing is setting up a Rome and France or Rome and Frank connection that then lasts for the next 500 years, right? When we get into next week, which will be our final week, we'll talk about how there's a, Rome, a pope in Rome and there's a pope in Avignon, France, and they're going at each other. And even today, you know, the pope in Rome will be like, those popes don't count. The people in Avignon will be like, they sure do, right? So there's still this tension in church history about that. But what we've seen, what we see is this France-Rome connection, right? That'll come back to haunt us here in a second when we look at Charlemagne, right? But it is Pelagius II's successor, Gregory, here he is looking super pious, right? He's got his eyes lifted up to the heavens and his hands out over scripture, holding the Bible in his left hand, right? But it's Gregory the Great, who lived from A.D. 540 to A.D. 604, who really makes the Pope or the office of the papacy what it is today. Alrighty? Okay, so let's get into Gregory, and then we'll get into Charlemagne. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Probably one of the Constantines, like the fifth or something like that. Somebody, I don't know. I'll look that up. Not the Constantine, no. Huh? He died in 8323, or 337. So uh, this is about 300 years afterwards. Okay. Gregory is born in Rome to a family of old aristocracy. And he lives through the invasions of the Ostrogoths and their destruction of Rome. Remember, the Lombards are bought off, but the Ostrogoths lay Rome to just absolute destruction. Okay? So he knows what it's like to, be, to see your hometown invaded, to be totally wiped out. Right? Little, is, little is known of his early years, but many scholars believe he may have been a city official before he became a monk. Right? So... He was probably some sort of lower, uh, like, council member or something like that. They don't really know. His name doesn't really start appearing until after he becomes a monk, right? 
and is as a monk under Pope Benedict I, that Gregory is made a member of his administrative council, right? Then Benedict dies, and then we get Pelagius II, who we just talked about, and he sends Gregory to Constantinople for six years to be his ambassador to Constantinople, right? So he had that administrative skills already. Pelagius II said, I recognize that in this young monk. I'm going to send him to Constantinople, and he can help talk between Rome and Constantinople. He's a very gifted man when it comes to administration, right? Okay? So Gregory returns to Rome, just as the Lombards are invading. He witnesses the horrors of the time, and he and Pelagius II organized the burial of the dead, sanitation, and feeding of the hungry, right? Then Pelagius becomes ill and dies. He dies of the plague, right, which is always constantly going around during the ancient world. Uh, the big one we'll look at next week when we look at the great mortality or the black death, right? That's a massive influence on the church and even today, right? So Gregory is elected pope, much to his dismay. He did not want to be pope. He was fine with just being a monk. He was fine with being an ambassador. He was fine with being a city administrator. He did not want the title of pope. And honestly, I don't blame him, right? Because you just went through the Ostrogoths growing up. You came back and Rome was being bought off, right? Or the Lombards are being bought off uh, by Pelagius II. And you're seeing all of this destruction. Pelagius II dies, and then all of a sudden you have all this responsibility on you. Right? I can understand why he didn't want to be pope. But like I said, he is an able administrator. Right? He reorganizes military defense, food distribution, and acquisition of food supplies from the island of Sicily. Basically what Gregory is doing is he's acting as the de facto ruler of Rome and its surrounding areas. Right? That's important. He acts as the de facto ruler of Rome and its surrounding areas. Right? Remember... With the fall of the Western Empire, who was left to take care of the people? Was, was there any type of political aspect? No, it was all the church, right? So who do the people run to when there's a problem? They don't run to the king. They don't run to any type of administrator. They run to their local bishop or pope in this case. Right? So when the Pope is the one sitting there making sure that your military is drilled and in tip-top shape, making sure that you have food, making sure that there are no barbarians sitting there trying to, you know, kill you, who are you going to look to as your leader? You're going to look to the Pope. Right? It is through that type of influence that Gregory is able to then bring a sense of power to the papacy, right? Any questions so far? No? Okay, let's keep going, right? But above all else, Gregory sees himself as a religious leader. He doesn't see himself as an admin, right? He doesn't see himself as a de facto ruler. He said, I'm a monk. I want to be a monk. I like being around the people. I like preaching. I'm going to continue to preach. He literally preaches in every church in Rome. Right? 
And there are a lot of churches in Rome other than the old basilica at this time. Historians believe there were over 100 churches in Rome for a population of less than 500,000. Right? Okay. At its zenith, Rome had about a million, million and a half people, right? Due to plagues and invasions and the loss of the Western Empire, Rome's population falls dramatically. Right? But still, there are basically over 100 churches in Rome, and every day he goes to at least a different church. How do you think the people are going to see him in that regard? Do you think they're going to be in favor of him? I would say so, yes. Why? Because he is publicly putting himself out there. He is being seen at literally every church, which means at one point or the other during the year, or at least three times a year, you're going to see the main man himself. Right? You're going to see him, you're going to see him as a good shepherd. You're going to see him as a good pastor. Right? He also promotes clerical celibacy. That's weird. We're going to run into that a lot tonight. Right? Clerical celibacy is not the norm at this time in the early 7th century. It's becoming fashionable, and here's why. Right? It went from the early church where the highest thing was martyrdom. Remember that? Right? And then once Constantine came to power, and the threat of martyrdom went from very high to absolutely none, right? You then jumped into monasticism, right? Okay? So you went from martyrdom, which is the literal sacrifice of your life, to monasticism, which is their way of sacrificing the world to the, right? Okay? And then you go to clerical celibacy, which is sacrificing your passions and your desires, right? That way you could be totally focused on scripture, on people, right? How's that working out for the Roman Catholic Church? Not, not too well, right? They still have a lot of issues with that, right? The Eastern Church, they're like, nope, we encourage our monks, we encourage our priests to get married, and they still do today, right? Okay. Gregory was instrumental in the conversion of the Visigoth king Recared in Spain to Nicene Orthodoxy. And then he sends a man named Augustine of Canterbury to the British Isles. Augustine of Canterbury becomes the first Archbishop of Canterbury. Right? So the Archbishopric of Canterbury is very old. It's about 1,400 years old. He tries to intervene in Frankish political affairs, but they don't, they don't yield to his entreaties. There was some infighting within France or the Frankish uh, group at this point, and he's like, let me step in, take care of it, and they're like, we like you in our ecclesiastical affairs, but keep your nose out of our political affairs. And so the, he was like, okay. That was the only time that he really failed at any type of administration. He was a deep admirer of Augustine of Hippo, and it was his interactions with this great theologian that leads Gregory to heavily influence medieval theology. Okay? Without getting too deep into Augustine, I'm going to say this. Augustine speculates 
but never really believes that there is a place of purification that exists for those who die in sin. Right? Everybody following where I'm going with this one? Right? Where they would spend some time going to heaven. These are in his arguments for original sin. Now, Augustine, coming out of a Platonic uh, background, just kind of plays these mental games. He's not really saying that there is such a place. He just likes to speculate and say, what if? What if there is this place where if you are a believer but you die in a state of sin, that you then have to go and work off that sin? Right? But in the end, Augustine says, there's no way that can happen because that doesn't align with God's doctrine of grace, nor does it align with the work of Christ on the cross. Right? Those are in his arguments for original sin. He's actually debating uh, Pelagius, who's a, a monk from the British Isles, uh, not the same Pelagius the second that we just talked about. It's an unfortunate name coincidence. But he's saying, what if there was? And then at the end of the argument, he goes, no, there's not. Right? Gregory, though, readily accepts this fact. Right? He accepts the fact that Augustine may have been, or he doesn't accept, may have been, he accepts the fact that even though Augustine's talking about it and says at the end, this place doesn't exist, Gregory goes, no, that's a, that's a real place. And here's why. In the seventh century, most of society has a very superstitious feel to it. Right? They, they, got along in their superstitions. Right? They were also very, uh, there was a lot of credulity. Anybody know what credulity is? The true definition is it's to take, it's quick to believe in something that is real, quick to believe that something is real or true. Basically, it's believing it without checking the facts. Right? So they're very superstitious. They live in a time of credulity or uh, obscurantism, that's a good word. Basically, they just obscure the facts, all right? Sounds a lot like today. <laughs> we live in a time that is very, that obscures the facts, all right? right? Fake news, right? Okay, ready? But that was the entire society. Where Augustine would say, 100% mind game, I'm just thinking through this, right? Scripture points to a no. Gregory the Great says, yes, this place exists. This place where I have to work off any type of sin as a believer if I die in the state of sin. Right? What does that sound like? Purgatory. That's exactly what that is. That develops. We'll see where they finally nail that down here tonight. All right? Also, Gregory totally sets aside Augustine's teachings on predestination and irresistible grace. He's more concerned with offering satisfaction to God for sins committed. So he's gone from being saved by grace to being saved by grace and your own merit. Okay? So now that makes sense. If, if you have to work off that stuff in purgatory, you have to have something to work off. Right? Okay? So the development of purgatory and the development of a grace and works faith. Okay? Ready? Okay. 
Gregory said that you can work off your sins in life through penance. Right? Penance is contrition, feeling sorry for it. Confession, confessing your sins to your local priest or bishop. And then the actual punishment itself, which we call satisfaction. So contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Right? And when we get into next week, you're going to see a whole lot of really weird ways people did satisfaction. Right? Normally up to this point, it was things like go help the poor. That was your act of satisfaction. It then develops into saying things like, say, 10 Hail Marys, 17 Our Fathers. Oh, and here's a cat of nine tables. Make sure your back looks like spaghetti by the end of the evening. Okay? Right? That doesn't work out too well during the plague because that just kind of spreads that disease. Right? But they do it anyway. Right? So Gregory, Gregory kind of begins to set a theological foundation for the Western church. Right? By, by believing things that Augustine just speculated on, purgatory, he also adds in the things of working your salvation out and uh, through con uh, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. All right? Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Those who are in the church but die in the state of sin must go to purgatory before attaining final salvation. The living, here's another thing he, put, he creates, the living can help the dead out of purgatory faster by offering masses in their favor. Right? Now what's the mass? Mass is just the worship service. Right? Okay. But if you put enough coins in the church's coffer and say, I dedicate this mass to Joe because... We're working Joe out of purgatory, all right? That's going to take a lot. That's going to take a lot of money, folks. <laughs> that was Jamie, man. That wasn't me, <laughs> right? But if we said enough masses or donated enough money, Joe would come out. Now that's going to be purely abused in the century before the Reformation, right? The old saying before that was. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Right? Good old, good old rhyme. Right? Okay. Right? He also believed, Gregory believed, that in Mass, Christ was sacrificed anew. So Jesus is crucified every time the Mass goes on. Now, every Sunday, they have at least three Masses at a church. And there are more than one Catholic church in the country and the world. Christ gets sacrificed a lot. As opposed to once for all, as Hebrews tells us. Actually, as the Gospels tell us. Right? Okay. Not everybody believed these, which is fine, but being the Pope, he has some influence, right? But unlike earlier Christian writers and theologians who sought to preserve a faith free from popular superstition, Gregory, Gregory readily accepted circulating stories as if they were confirmation of the faith. So if 
St. Candace in her death somehow had miracles happen at her shrine, Gregory would be like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, let's, let's offer prayers to St. Candace. All right? Okay? So there's, there's little, little to no fact being based on all this. It's all, hey, this sounds good. Let's just do it. All right? Okay? Sir? It is secondary to their study in philosophy. It is secondary to their societal understandings of what is going on in the world. Right? So instead of looking at the world through the lens of scripture, they're looking at scripture through the lens of the world. Right? Yes, sir. based off the word of one man. Yep, yep. That's exactly what happens. Right? But we're going to see some pushback on that. All right? Remember how I said that there's a deep connection between Western monasticism and the papacy? Right? We're going to see that happen here starting with Charlemagne. All right? But any questions about Gregory the Great? Go ahead. The only political gain, and to be honest, I don't know enough about Gregory the Great. He's actually a very fascinating figure. Uh, but if there's any political gain to be made, it's in the influence, in trying to influence the Franks who are rising at this time, right? Uh, and then, because they're actually pushing some of the, the Goths further back across the Rhine and the Danube like they used to be. And then there's the trying to be separate or as powerful as Constantinople. Right? Because with the church still being together and the side of power still being at Constantinople and the emperor being the bishop of bishops, you need a more powerful, you need a similar powerful person on the Italian peninsula to influence things going on in Germany and France at the time, and later on in Spain, uh, mainly just because of geological closeness to those areas. That's why they start looking towards Rome. Gregory just happens to be such a great administrator that he makes it look easy. 
Right, so they're like, oh, we know what you're doing. Right, we're gonna, we'll come talk to you. Right? Probably some of that went to his head uh, a little bit. Uh, but he was also a man of his time. Uh, so when you were given those types of responsibilities, you did what you could to get them done uh, because there were real physical threats out there. Uh, but uh, he used his political power fairly well for the most part for, uh, and then uh, with the ecclesiastical power he more oh, how should I say this he was a little bit more laxed in his political power or in his ecclesiastical power in the fact that he allowed those things to happen but all of society were thinking these superstitious things and they were a little bit more credulous they were a little bit more obscure in their willing to actually sit down, right? Any, any type of, even from monks, monks all the way up. We're gonna, we're gonna see the connection develop. We're gonna see the connection develop as they go through these monastic and papal reforms here in about two centuries after this, okay? But those thoughts are the exact same, right? What do you, Not yet, not yet. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. We won't look at that until about the 13th century. That's when they really start to grab a hold of stuff like that. Right? So like the Medici families. Right? Yeah, yeah, God bless them, sure. Right? The Medici families, uh, or the Medici family, they, they basically take a monopoly on the papacy there for a while. And I mean, they're, they're as debauched as you can get. All, of the, all the Medici popes had wives and mistresses. Uh, they had, one of them had like 27 illegitimate kids. Uh, but it comes to a power thing, and it's if I, can, if I can make the papal buildings look great, right, then that's more important than, you know, actually preaching the gospel in church, right? Also, a lot of the money that comes from the new world goes into the coffers of the papacy. And we know how well that ends here in South America and North America, right? So it quickly goes from a 
speculative aspect of Gridner the Great to an absolute crash. I mean, they're, they're just as debauched. There's no difference between the Pope and the world. There's no difference between the church and the world, right? But praise God that there are men and women who are faithful even within those circumstances. And we'll get into them next week. Maybe in the long run, Gregory saw himself as a preacher, so he still was a lot more faithful to the gospel than a lot of the later popes. You just begin to see his influence within the Western church, uh, not so much in the Eastern church. They look at some of the things Gregory says and be like, dude, you are way off your rocker. This is why we have councils, right? Okay. But the Western church is a whole lot different than the Eastern church, as we've already discovered. Right? The Western church, because there's no empire, the Western church, because there's no political cohesiveness like in the East, the Western church has to fill in that vacuum, and a vacuum always sucks in something that's available at the time. In this case, it was the church. So with great power comes great responsibility, and we will see how they mess that up royally. Right. Any other questions? No. Uh, those will come in with more mystic mysticism of uh, the early 13th and early 14th centuries. There's, that'll be next week. You already see a high veneration of the Virgin Mary. It's in, it's in the creed, right? They still call her Virgin Mary, right? They believed that after Jesus was born, she and Joseph did not have sex, right? That all of his brothers and sisters were Joseph's from a previous marriage, that his earlier wife died in childbirth. However, Scripture says they did not know each other, right? No each other, that's a good biblical word for it, they did not have sex until after Jesus was born. Because they were human, and they were married, and they slept in the same bed, and those things are hard to control. <laughs> okay? The idea of Mary being a perpetual virgin uh, starts in about the 1200s, when there's this really huge mystical movement. Some of the language you, you hear today, like nuns are married to Christ, that comes about in the 12, uh, 1200s, early 1300s. Uh, but the idea of Mary being immaculately conceived is not until the late 18th, early 19th centuries. The idea of the Pope being infallible is less than 200 years old. That's a, a, a Lateran Council from the 1850s. Right? And they actually screwed that up too. Because the infallibility of the Pope has nothing to do with whatever comes out of his mouth as gospel. It literally says that when there are two theological arguments and both of them can be right, 
the Pope is the deciding factor. That was taken like this. Whatever said from St. Peter's throne is gospel truth. All right? You don't have to look very far after that until you look at Pius XII during the Second World War, and he could have done a whole lot more to save the Jews. And he didn't. All right? okay? It wasn't until John XXIII in the Second Vatican Council where he was like, whoa, let's, re, let's re go back and look at this definition. Yeah, well, John was only pope for six months. And then he died under mysterious circumstances. Okay? And I don't say that to make it look like they start killing your popes, but they, ha they will. We'll see that tonight. <laughs> but, right, but you start messing with power, like the infallibility definition, and people are going to, right? The Vatican, Second Vatican Council still hasn't made a correction on that, in the, and it lasted seven or eight years during the late 50s, early 60s. Some of you are alive in this room when that was going on. Some of you remember John the 23rd, right? He was actually a very godly man. And I think they just got rid of him because he stirred the pot and they didn't like it, right? But anyway, let's get into European history real quick. Charlemagne, right? Here's Charlemagne. Charlemagne comes from the Latin Carlos Magnus, which literally just means Charles the Great. He was king of the Franks. He was born in AD 742, died in AD 14. Through bloody con conquest and forced baptism, he unites almost all of the lands that constituted the western half of the Roman Empire, the exceptions being the British Isles and Moorish Spain, so the Muslims in Spain. On Christmas Day, AD 800, in the old St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, Pope Leo III crowns Charlemagne Emperor of the Romans. And here he is, being crowned by Leo III. Okay. Here's the interesting part. Western Roman Empire is born under the sponsorship and protection of the church, not by Charlemagne's conquests. Right? Who declares Charlemagne emperor of the Romans? Leo. Pope Leo III. Right? Now, Charlemagne's not going to say, no, sir. So he, he takes on that title. Right? It is Leo, not Charlemagne, who revives the Western Roman Empire solely through his declaration. How do you think the Eastern Empire thinks of this? What do you think the Byzantines think? Yeah, they're like, who are you to declare that the Western Roman Empire is still around? Right? But guess what? They've got some infighting on their own. They're not going to worry about it. Right? They're worried about the Muslims to the south and to the east of them. So they're not worried about taking care of whether or not Charlemagne is actually the true emperor of the western half of the empire. Right? Okay. Charlemagne is the first western emperor since AD 476. So there's a 324-year gap between the last emperor in the west and Charlemagne. He ruled his people both civilly and ecclesiastically 
He appoints bishops just as he felt necessary to appoint his generals. All right? Church needs a bishop. All right? Charlemagne's like, here, you, you get to go be bishop. All right? Who's going to say no to the emperor? All right? All right? Okay? Preaching was to be done in the vernacular and not in Latin. He enacts laws to make sure that Sunday was a day of rest. Tithes were to be collected just as taxes were to be collected. So they had a tithe man come around and every month you had to give your 10%. Okay. He reformed monasticism as many abbots became rich and lazy. Those are the two words there, rich and lazy. All right. But he also revives and reforms learning. Charlemagne himself was not an educated man. He is what you could be called a dummy. Right? He was a phenomenal military strategist, though, right? which is crazy because you think, you have to have some sort of brains. He knew how to fight. He didn't know how to really digest material as he read it. There are some scholars who think that he didn't really know how to read at all, actually. He was just good at fighting. Right? But he understood the importance of an educated public, which is Awesome, all right? So there was to be a school in every church. Okay, remember, the church is seen as the guardians of ancient culture. So where's the best place to put a school? In the church. Why? Because everybody has to at least show up to church once a week. School was to be for both the poor and the rich alike. It did not matter what your social status was. You were going to school. And it was paid for by the church, through tithes, and through Charlemagne's own coffers. He put money in to supply these schools. He made the church take those tithes and apply them to the school. He made sure that the church took the tithes and applied them to feeding the poor. Right? Charlemagne's a pretty good guy, to be honest. It's too bad he died when he did. All right? Uh, but along with those uh, schools for the rich and the poor alike, because of the schools in the church, many scholars flock to Charlemagne's empire. Right? Now, what are the effects of Charlemagne? There's a strong union between church and state, which is understandable when you're saying, Jamie, you get to be bishop nowadays. Right? Okay. Also, Zach... You're going to be general of whatever army this is now. I don't know what, you know, whatever you call these armies. Right? Huh? You accept? Okay. All right. Okay. At the end, we will have a knighting service for you. You will kneel before me. <laughs> right? But what Charlemagne was able to do, his greatest effect on Western Europe, is that he was able to pull Western Europe out of the confusion brought around by the Germanic invasions of the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. Guess what happens when you unite a people? There's no confusion, right? Don't have to worry about the Goths coming across. Don't have to worry about uh, the remainders of the Celts in France or the Frankish lands in Gaul, as it was known in the Roman times, right? And by unifying most of Western Europe under one ruler himself, he brings about political, economic, and social stability. 
That's awesome. There are some theological activities in Charlemagne's empire. Okay. The, uh, the revitalization of learning brought about an increase in the copying of manuscripts. So a lot of the manuscripts of Augustine and the other church fathers are copied down. Also, it's during Charlemagne's time that we get our only surviving copies of Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Right? Those were already 1,200 years old by the time Charlemagne came around, and they were always passed down orally. It was a monk in his empire, in Charlemagne's empire, that took the time to write them down from memory and by going around and asking other people what, if they could remember. Crazy, huh? Yeah, 1,200 years after the fact, right? They're finally written down. There is only one great theological thinker during this time. His name is John Scotus Aragina. Uh, Do I have a picture of John Scotus? There he is. John Scotus was an Irish monk. He was brilliant. He was well-versed in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. His greatest writing is entitled On the Division of Nature. However, he is very Neoplatonic and he's still hard to read through and understand. Right? Uh, because of this, John Scotus is often accused of being a Platonist. But that's your one, one deep theological thinker. His name literally means John the Irish Gaul. Crazy, huh? Well, whatever, right? It works. Normally, we just call him John Scotus, right? Okay. There are some theological controversies that arise. Just listen to these. There is, out of Spain, there arises a form of adoptionism, right? Now, adoptionism literally says that Jesus was a mere man who God adopted. He was not divine. That's adoptionism, right? Spanish adoptionism doesn't really go that far, but wants to make a distinction between, between Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity. They want to keep those separate with two in one. Basically, it's, it's a roundabout way of looking at Antiochene Christology. Remember we talked about Alexandrine and Antiochene Christology, where they were trying to understand how does God become man? How do you have two natures in one? That's Spanish adoptionism. It's just Antiochene Christology. All right? The works and uh, the writings of Augustine of Hippo on predestination come about again. A monk, and I only tell you his name because it is awesome. His name is Gottschalk. G-O-T-T-S-C-H-A-L-K. Gottschalk of Orbase, who was well-versed in Augustine, had concluded that the church had erroneously departed from Augustine's teachings, especially in regards to predestination. Since the church didn't really understand Augustine's writings at pre, on predestination at this time, it won't really be until about Thomas Aquinas that they begin to flesh some of that out. Uh, they, uh, they debated, had John Scotus at the debate. Gottschalk's declared a heretic in prison, goes insane, and dies in prison. All right? So that, that, ends, that ends debate on predestination. Right? But he's got a cool name, Gottschalk. 
And then, one that will come back to haunt us again, is the presence of Christ in communion. A treatise by a monk named uh, Pastatius Radbertus, entitled On the Body and the Blood of the Lord, declares that when the bread and wine are consecrated by the priest, they are transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. This is a forerunner to transubstantiation. However, even though he says it's transformed literally into the body and blood of Christ, Radbertus didn't really believe that it happened literally, which will later be defined by the Fourth Lateran Council. We'll talk about that later. But instead, it transforms literally through mystery and spirituality. Don't ask me how that happens literally. Okay? Right? Right? However, according to Radbertus, there are some individuals who are allowed, allowed because they are super spiritual, to see the body and blood of Christ instead of the bread and the wine. Okay? What this controversy shows is that by the time of Charlemagne, there were those in the church who believed in a change between the bread and the wine and the body and the blood of Christ during the communion. However, it is important to note that most theologians of this time saw this type of language, the change of the elements in communion, to be exaggeration and superstition. They said it's stupid to think that it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. Okay? And that it was mainly superstition on the part of local priests and charismatic monks. Okay? They're the charismatic people of the time. Right? Remember, this is a time of superstition, fidelity, and obscurantism. So people are going to come up with all sorts of crazy things. It is a declaration by a monk who then becomes pope that sets the doctrine of transubstantiation into what is now believed in the Roman Catholic Church. It is not through debate. It is not through any type of uh, wrestling with scripture or the great theologians that went on before them. It is literally the word of a pope that sets that into motion. But the glory of Charlemagne's empire fades with his death. His son, Louis the Pious, though a good ruler, did not have the same judge of character as his father, but he did continue his monastic reforms. We'll get into the monastic reforms here in a minute. Right. And after Louis's death, Charlemagne's empire is marked by civil war, but united again under Charlemagne's grandson, Charles the Fat. Alrighty. He rocked that dad bod like nobody's business. Okay. After Charles the Fat's death, Charlemagne's empire on a practical level ceases to be as internal divisions take over and the threat of the Norsemen and the Magyars increase. Where are the Magyars from? M-A-G-Y-A-R. No. No. In Latin, they are called the Huns. What country do we know today? Hungary. Ah, so the Magyars are actually the Hungarians, right? Or the Austro-Hungarians, to be exact. They come from that region, right? Okay. So you've got people coming in from the east, 
and the north. Where are the Norsemen from? Their name says it. From the north. We know them as the Vikings. Right? And the Vikings are really good at plundering and raping and pillaging. Right? Okay? Right? So, Charlemagne's empire really lasts during its heyday during Charlemagne himself. Right? Which is too bad. Right? There is some papal decay or papal decay at this time. The ability to crown emperors gives great prestige to the Bishop of Rome. However, in Rome itself, the Pope often was unable to control that city. Right? A prophet in his own hometown, huh? Right? There were many in Rome at this time who didn't think the Pope was in Rome long enough to actually rule that city, because he wasn't. He was out going around gallivanting around the countryside. But uh, so there were always types of riots. There were all types of, uh, uh, let's just say, wild, frivolous parties uh, in the streets. And so they reverted basically back to acting like pagans. Yeah. So he couldn't control. Every time he'd come in, they'd be like, eh, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. You just go sit on your throne and think good thoughts. Now, here's, here's a question for you. Why do you think, and I want you to think about this, why do you think that the popes were susceptible to that type of reality or to that type of action? Why do you think? Why they thought? Yeah, expand on that. So they're very affected by their own society. Okay, that's a good one. What else? Corrupts, absolutely. That's the big one. Right? You let power go to your head, sure enough, guess what you do? Anything you want, right? Okay, right? Okay. It also shows just how absolutely human the popes are. Yep. Now, not all popes acted like this, but a lot of them did. Right? But once you start that massive boulder down the hill, it's kind of hard to stop it, right? Okay. So, between the, pope, the death of Pope Hadrian II in 8872, there are 49 bishops who occupy the throne of St. Peter between 8072 and 1045. 49 of them. On average, on average, they rule as Bishop of Rome for less than two years. All right? There are times when multiple popes are running at once, vying for the bishopric of Rome, and there is one pope who rules for only 15 days because he was murdered. That's Boniface V. 
sixth, 15 days. His pontificate was later declared null and void by John the Ninth. Well, that was nice of John. Okay. Fifteen days in between that time period. Right. The longest one was 15 years. Right. And he died of old age. It's because he was an old man when he took the pontificate. Okay. He, uh, he was the exception to the rule because of his ability to rule and sit on St. Peter's throne for 15 years. He helped push that towards the two-year mark. Without him, I did the math, the average was 11 months. Crazy, right? Now, there are also, oh, there are also a couple that lived for, or ruled for 12 years, but 15 years. Right? How long did JP II, how long was he pope? How long was John Paul II? 79 to 2004, 2005. That's 26 years, 27 years. It's not bad. Okay. Finally, in AD 1045, Henry III of Bavaria has enough. Where's Bavaria? We've been to Bavaria. It's in Germany, southern Germany. He steps in, he names Clement II the Bishop of Rome, and in return, Clement II duly names Henry III the first Holy Roman Emperor in AD 1046. Okay? So it's the Germans that step in and say, hey guys, we've had enough of this. We've had 49 of you people in 200 years. All right? Make up your minds. All right? So then Clement II then calls him the Holy Roman Empire. All right? Questions? That's Charlemagne. No, that's a lot of European history to go and dive through. Okay, let's look at some reform movements, renewal movements. Right? Renewal movements amidst the decline of Charlemagne's empire and the decay of the papacy. There are calls for reform and renewal. Right? So mainly, that's, uh, there's growing frustration with violence and corruption in the church, simony, petty rivalry, the continual connection between the church and the state, and at times, the gross immorality of popes and bishops. What is simony? S-I-M-O-N-Y. It's buying your office. Simony, S-I-M-O-N-Y. So if I wanted to be bishop of Wichita, I would go to the pope or the ruler, and I would say, I'll give you $100,000 to become bishop of Wichita, and they'd be like, Sold. Right? That's simony. Simony. S I M O N Y. Simony. That's exactly right. right. So you can buy and sell that office to the highest bidder. Right? Okay? So remember, we discussed the connection between popes or the papacy and the Western monastic movements. The reform movements begin in the monasteries and then have their impact felt in the, felt in the papacy. Let's look at monastic reforms. Monastic for, uh, reforms in uh, monasteries quickly became sites of wealth, and they began to be means of personal aggrandizement by the purchase of posts, simony, or straight-out homicide. Right? So if I want to become an abbot of a monastery, 
and Sam was the current abbot, and I didn't like Sam, I'd bump him off. Right? Didn't cost me a dime, right? except to pay the assassin. So there we go. Right? So I can do it. Don't think I haven't thought about it either. What's that? Mm-mm. Yep, you have to remember that communication, speeds of communication are horribly slow at this point. So by the time, by the time news got around that I bumped Sam off, uh, I myself could be dead. So what difference does it make? <laughs> right. Yeah, what a time to live and die. That is a true statement. Right? They had all the fun back then. Anyway, the wealth of monasteries is one reason why so many monasteries were sacked by the Norsemen. Right? You want gold? You want silver? You want all sorts of really nice stuff? Hit your boat, no pun intended, to Vikings, and off you go. Right? They would pillage and burn and kill priests and monks and abbots without blinking an eye, right? Okay. Some monasteries, the rule of Benedict was totally ignored, but many monks who felt a genuine call for their vocation cried out for reform, and the first site of reform was Cluny. Cluny is in modern-day France. Its abbot was Bernot. Uh, he was a monk who held fast to Benedict's rule. He went to Duke William III of Aquitaine and said, William, give up your favorite hunting grounds so I can create a monastery. And William III saying, I want to be a good Christian and I want to go to heaven. He said, sure. And so that's what he did, right? Bernot demanded that the new monastery be deeded to St. Peter and Paul, and this prevented the popes from invading or taking over what, and I quote, rightly belonged to to the two holy apostles. So if I deed it to one of the apostles, the Pope can't come in and be like, oh, that's mine. All right? Because it belongs to somebody else. It belongs to Peter and Paul. Right? And who's going to mess with Peter and Paul? Well, if you mess with Peter, well, guess what you're doing? You're messing with the first Pope, allegedly. Right? You mess with a Paul, you're messing with the greatest apostle that ever lived. Right? So you don't do that. Smart thinking on Bruno's neck. Bruno's uh, part there, right? The monks at Cluny, and they're called Cluniacs, C-L-U-N-I-A-C-S, Cluniacs, spent the majority of their time in the divine office. Remember we talked about the divine office? That's prayer throughout the day, right? And it is there that they differ from the rule because Benedict's rule, remember, demanded lots of physical labor. Well, you're not doing a whole lot of physical labor when you're going through the divine office 18 hours out of the day. Right? You're just sitting on your butt chanting. Right? Okay. Bernot and his successors then took their model, Cluny, and went throughout the countryside and other monasteries in France, in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, and reordered those houses as well. Okay? They then set their sights on the reformation of the entire church, and what followed, even if you were not Cluniacs, what followed was they saw large aspects of the population look at Cluny as a miracle. 
It's an intervention by God to clean up his church and bring about a renewed dawn in Christian life and worship. So Clooney was seen as a gift. Right? Why? Because you're getting people, you're getting monks back into the word. You're getting them ordered. You're saying you can't buy your position. You can't kill for your position. Right? We're going to demand that if you claim to be a monk or a priest or a bishop, we're going to demand that you act like one. Right? So the, the populace, the general populace, was like, excellent. We like that idea. Okay? But the Cluniacs also did this. They pushed for clerical celibacy. Though not the rule for many centuries, many monks and clerics practiced clerical celibacy, though not true in the East as we've already discussed, right? But the Cluniacs made clerical celibacy a pillar of their reform. We'll get into that and why here in a second. Right? Poverty was another pillar of their reform. A good monk owns nothing and leads a simple life. Right? A good monk. Now look at Cluny. Would you say that's a pretty nice house? Yeah, I would, right? Okay, now this is, a, this is not the same architecture that existed at the time. This is probably uh, late 17th, early 18th century, maybe. Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, okay, right? But that's not how it looked at the time. It would have been very plain. Right? That's still a really nice place, though. You can go there. Right? It only costs you, one, an airplane ticket over to France. But you can spend the entire weekend there. That's cool. We should do that. That'd be fun. <laughs> anyway, they let anybody in there. Right? They don't care. Right? Okay. The irony of poverty is that most monasteries owned their own vast expanses of land and all sorts of things. Nobles and aristocrats like to gift lands and other things, gold, silver, expensive items, like salt cellars. Right? Salt was an expensive item at the time, so here's a big old box that you hold salt in. It's called salt cellar. Right? To monasteries in hope of meriting their souls towards salvation. That's the only reason why you did it. You try to buy your way into heaven. Right? Okay. So monasteries grew large, wealthy, and powerful. And that eventually happened to Cluny, as this picture shows. Okay? So while the reformers criticized the wealth of the bishops, they also glorified in the wealth of the bishops. Right? And they continued to insist on the right of the church to its possessions for the glory of God, to help the poor. But the problem is, is this hinders reformation. When you own a lot of stuff, you're not really wanting to reform. You're just wanting to get more stuff, which then brought back simony, and led to the constant involvement of the church in political intrigues. Right? So there is some failure of the monastic reform. Accumulated wealth was the main cause of the failure. Right? It became difficult to set aside the lust for power and wealth. It also becomes difficult once you have lots of money to take up the causes of the poor. Right? Because what do you want to do? You want to sit in your cell all day or in the library all day and uh, do nothing except Gain more stuff. Okay? Right. Questions on Clooney? No? 
Here's the connection between monasticism and the papacy. Right? Papal reform began with Bruno of Toul, T-O-U-L. I don't know if he was a tool, but that's where he was from. He was a Cluniac monk who took the name Leo IX. Okay. Leo had two friends in this venture, Hildebrand and Humbert. We'll run into Humbert here in a second. We've already have, actually. Right? Papal reform took the Cluniac movement of clerical celibacy and the abolition of simony. Guess who brings in clerical celibacy as norm now? It's Leo IX and his friends. Actually, it's Hildebrand, but Leo's uh, through Leo and his influence. Right? There's a social connection between clerical celibacy and simony. The type of economic pro or type of economic uh, situation that you have in Europe at this time is called feudalism. Feudalism means that lords own vast tracts of land and then they give it out for people to uh, to farm, right? Serfs, serfdom, feudalism, right? So lords give it out to their vassals, vassals then dole it out, right? Serfs remain dirt poor, vassals and the lords get incredibly wealthy. Okay, right? So, the church, right, along with, uh, was one of the few institutions, along with military service, in which there was a measure of social mobility, right? Not a whole lot of mobility in feudal Europe. But if I was in the church or if I was in the military, I could, as if I survived the battlefield. Service in church and merit on the battlefield. Simony threatens social mobility because it guarantees that only the rich can occupy church offices. And as we've already discussed, it's by buying it, right? Can't buy nothing if you don't have the money, right? Clerical celibacy sought to pass church offices on, uh, or excuse me, clerical marriage sought to pass church offices onto your children. So church offices then become hereditary. If you say that a priest cannot get married, all right, technically or supposedly, he can't have kids, right? Therefore, there's nobody to pass on your office to, right? So simony, let's battle simony. That way you can't purchase your, your uh, office. Let's focus on clerical celibacy. That way you're not supposed to have any children and then pass your office on to somebody else. So it's either by buying it or heredity. Right? Okay? That's why the big in, that's why the big focus on clerical 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 celibacy. Right? They are supported. These reforms are supported by the majority of the population because the masses understood that what they were supporting was an opportunity to wrest the power and control of the church from the incredibly powerful and the incredibly wealthy. Right? So the normal population accepted it. Right? Why? Because it sucks being poor. It sucks being a serf. It's horrible. Right? Do you know the last serfs were actually freed? It was Alexander II of Russia in the 1860s. All right? It's been less than 200 years since serfdom has been abolished. That is like a blink of the eye. When it, in regards to history. 
Crazy, huh? Not until the 1860s, while we were fighting our own civil war to free slaves. He did that in 1864. Huh, right? Okay. Leo IX tries to take these reforms to Germany and France, but were met with resistance. The French just flat out ignored them, which is awesome. They were like, nope, we like our simony and we like clerical marriage. Right? The German states, they weren't keen on Leo intervening in their political affairs and were less willing to accept clerical celibacy. So they were like, nine. Leo says okay, but he makes two grave errors during his pontificate. He fights the Norsemen in Sicily and in southern Italy and ends up their prisoner and dies in their captivity. Right? I'm sure he didn't. Actually, he died in a dungeon, right? so they didn't treat him too well. His second mistake is that he sends Humbert to Constantinople as his legate. Or his legate. Humbert's rigidity and total lack of interest for the Eastern Church led to the Great Schism of 1054 because it is Humbert who marches into Hagia Sophia and puts a letter of excommunication on the altar. And we've already run into that. Leo IX, uh, those were his two greatest mistakes. Fought the Norsemen and appointed Humbert, who had no inkling to learn Greek and to understand the Eastern Empire, he sent him to Constantinople, right? And we all know how well that worked out, right? There's another form of, uh, form of reform at this time. The Second Lateran Council of 1059 determines how popes would be elected, and it's still done this way today. Anybody know how a pope is elected? Here's how they used to be elected. The people of Rome would elect the pope. They'd elect the Bishop of Rome. Now it's the Cardinals, College of Cardinals, right? So basically what they did was they created a republic within Rome that said the Cardinals will bring up names and the people will say yay or nay and then the Pope and then the Cardinals cast their ballots, right? Okay. That's still done today when a new Pope is elected out of the chimney, out of the Vatican, comes white smoke. They throw the, all of the uh, ballots in there, and it's white smoke because they use straw to burn it. Right? So you know, the people of Rome know when a new pope is elected by seeing white smoke come out of the chimney there in the Vatican City. Right? Okay, so the next time, who's pope now? Francis I. When he kicks the bucket or decides to retire, like Benedict XVI decided to retire, uh, watch the election on the news. They'll cover it, right? And when everybody, everybody gathers around in St. Peter's Basilica in that square, they, they watch. And Rome parties afterwards. They still do that today, right? It's actually very fascinating, okay? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Cardinals are not elected. Cardinals are set up by the Pope himself. Sure is. Because guess where Popes come from now? They come from the Cardinals. That is a true statement. Yeah. Benedict XVI was a Cardinal. Uh, Francis was a Cardinal. Uh, JP II was a Cardinal. 
um, most of the yeah most of the bishop most of the popes have been cardinals since this time. Right? A little bit of nepotism there for you, isn't it? Yep. Yep. Right. Alexander II was the first pope to be elected under this new system, right? Meaning Hildebrand. Hildebrand was elected, and he takes the name Alexander II. Okay? Uh, no, excuse me. Hildebrand is elected pope after Alexander II dies. He takes on the name Gregory VII. So Alexander II dies. Actually, let's, let's back up. Leo dies, Leo IX. Alexander II is elected. He dies. Hildebrand is elected, and he takes the name Gregory VII, and he continues the lines of reform under Leo IX. Why? Because they were best buds. Right? So you're going to say, oh, well, Leo IX wanted to go around you know, clerical celibacy and destruction of simony. He was my friend. I'm going to do the same thing. All right? So then by the early 12th century, that's the 1100s, uh, further issues with German states led Henry V of the Holy Roman Empire, not Henry V of England, but Henry V of the Holy Roman Empire, to compromise. Uh, they called it St. Peter's Patrimony. This is another type of reform where the emperor gave up rights to seat bishops and the church would give up feudal privileges. So civil rulers were not allowed to elect their own bishops. That's basically what that says. The church, on the other hand, had to give up its feudal privileges. Here's the crazy thing. They don't give up their land, but they give up their ability to make money through that land. So they find other ways to make money is what they did. So they're still rich, right? So that's called St. Peter's Patrimony. Basically what it was was it was just Henry V tired of the popes getting in on his lands in Germany and getting on in his lands in, Holy Rome, in the Holy Roman Empire. Right? So by the end of the program of reforms, uh, by the mid-12th century, clerical celibacy becomes the norm. That is the Fourth Lateran Council. Simony almost disappears. It will make a resurgence. And by that time, the power of the popes continued to grow, reaching its apex in the 13th and the 14th centuries. Right? Okay? But once again, the reforms started in the monastic movements, and then those monks are elected pope. Right? So then they take their monastic reforms and apply it to the entire church. Right? Remember, because Western monasticism and the pope, the office of the pope, are forever entwined. Right? Because a lot of your popes come from monastics. Uh, that's even true today. Francis I is a, uh, he's not a Jesuit. Is he a Jesuit? He's a Jesuit. Okay. Right? It's a form of monastery. It's a monk. Okay. All right. Let's quickly talk about the Crusades, and then let's look at some, the golden age of medieval Christianity. I'm going to say this. There is nothing good that comes from the Crusades. Not a darn thing. All right? Okay, here's, here are the Crusades. From 1096 to 1204, so they last a little over 100 years. The spirit of the Crusades is sad. It's dramatic and contradictory to the church. All right? Its results are ephemeral at best, tragic at worst. 
What does ephemeral mean? What's that? Very good. Excellent. Right. In my day, we'd have looked it up in a dictionary. Now I Google it. I'm just kidding. Dang it. Anyway, that is correct. They're long, they're, they're short lasting. Right? Usually just, they conquer a little bit of land, and then it's taken back. And they conquer a little bit of land, and then it's taken back. Right? Nothing good comes from the Crusades. The first Crusade, or the Crusades were military attempts to regain the holy lands from the Muslims who had conquered those lands in the 7th and 8th centuries. So that during the 11th to the 13th centuries, there are eight crusades altogether. Now, those are the military crusades. There's actually another type of crusade called the Children's Crusade, and it's absolutely fascinating. So what would they would do is they would get these basically con men to go around each little village and gather up the children, right? And they would say things like, we're going to go to the Holy Lands, and we're going to sing, and it's going to cause the, the heathen Muslims to come to Christ, and we're going to take the Holy Lands back. Well, guess what? That doesn't really work out that way because they're all taken to ships and then they're taken to North Africa and they're sold into slavery. Yeah. Crazy, huh? So hundreds of thousands of children left on ships that their parents allowed them to go on, all right? And they're sold into slavery and never seen again. Or they wreck in the Mediterranean and drowned. One crazy thing, though, is this. We get the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin out of these children's crusades. Hmm, interesting, right? Because normally you're supposed to take the rats out, right? Yeah. What happens at the end of that story? He takes the children out, and that's where we get that story from. So it's an old, old story. It's about a 1,000 years old. Crazy, huh? That's kind of neat. Right? right? But there they are. There are your These are, this is up to the Fourth Crusade. There are eight of them. We also get during this time the story of things like Robin Hood. Robin of Loxley is a crusader during the Third Crusade because that's when Richard the Lionheart, King of England, goes to the Holy Lands. Okay? Right? They think Robin of Loxley was a real man. Uh, and then his story just kind of became myth. He was, it's kind of a hagiography or a biography of a saint in some ways, right? So let me read to you something that Pope Urban II said. Pope Urban II is the guy that launches the Crusades. I want you to listen to this quote. I say it to those who were present. I command that it be said to those who were absent. Christ commands it. All who go thither, that is, to the Holy Lands, all those that go thither and lose their lives, be it on the road or in the sea or in the fight against the pagans, will be granted immediate forgiveness of sins. This I grant to you, who all whom will march by virtue of the great gift which God has given me. The great gift that he's talking about is not the ability to forgive sins. The great gift is his office as the Pope. has nothing to do with being a pastor. has nothing to do with 
biblical theology. It has everything to do with his office as the Pope. But did you see that? If you die on these crusades, whether you die getting there or you die on the battlefield or you die coming back, you are immediately forgiven of your sins and when you die, you immediately go to heaven. Huh? It's a jihad is exactly what it is. There is nothing different between the crusades and normal jihad. I said it. It's recorded. I'm not taking it back. All righty? If you differ with me, I don't care. I really don't. Because Christianity, the gospel, does not spread this way. It does not. It does not spread by the sword. In fact, it's the exact opposite. When you do it this way, guess what happens to the witness of the church? You have no witness. And we still wrestle with it today. That's what this next slide says. We wrestle with it today. Because when you go to witness to your Muslim neighbors, one of the first things that comes up is, well, what about the Crusades? They will bring it up every single time. And do you know what the response of the church should be? The response of the church should be on its knees begging their forgiveness. Because you do not, I'm about to get emotional, <clears throat> you do not spread the gospel of Christ at the end of a sword. You let the word, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, do your fighting for you. You do not do it with a sword. You don't do it with an AR-15. You do it through the gospel. You do it through the word. You do it through your lives. Those are the crusades. Nothing good comes out of them. Nothing will ever come out of a crusade like that. Right? The only good crusades were Billy Graham's. And I don't say that to laugh. I say that in sincerity. Let's move on. We've got five minutes. Okay. As the crusades draw to a close, medieval Christianity reaches its zenith. Right? You develop the, uh, there's a development of the mendicant monastic movements and the continual rise of the papal of papal power, things we're going to talk about, two things we're going to talk about next week is scholasticism and architecture because they are beautiful, right? Especially, especially the architecture. It's gorgeous, right? But I want to be able to actually spend time with those, so that's why we're doing them next week because we have to look at scholasticism. We have to look at Thomas Aquinas, okay? The mendicant monastic movements... Mendicant comes from the Latin word mendicare, and it just means to beg. These are your begging monks, the monks who literally are so poor that they beg on the side of the road. Okay? They are a religious reaction to economic changes and growing cities. At this time, and this is the beginning of the, uh, the, uh, beginning of the 13th century, so just at the end of the Crusades, the, the end of the 12th century, right? There is a rising class that happens in Europe. It's called the merchant class. Right? Now, they're still gonna, it's gonna, still going to take about 400 years before they finally come up. All right? But you, you begin to see this merchant class come up, and they begin to have wealth. They're not aristocrats. All right? These are men and women who, through blood, sweat, and tears, built their own riches. Right? And they do a lot of that through salt trade. Okay? Because salt is a premium at this time. Right? The forerunner 
oh, uh, so growing wealth of the merchant classes and also growing cities, right? So people are once again trying to get away from it all. The forerunner to this movement is Peter Waldo of Lyons, France, the Waldensians, uh, but he didn't have papal approval and he and his followers were persecuted. They fled to the Alps and continued their way of life until the Protestant Reformation when they took up Protestantism, right? Okay, so they were kind of the forerunners to this mendicant movement. But there are two really famous mendicant movements. The first one is this man right here, Francis of Assisi, right? We sing his song, what? What's his, what song does he sing? <clears throat> All Creatures of Our God and King, he wrote that. Lift up your voice and let us sing, oh praise him, oh praise him, alleluia, alleluia, right? He loved to be outdoors and he loved nature, which is one of the reasons why he sang that or wrote it. His true name was Giovanni. He came from the rising merchant class, so he had money. He gave all that up and appealed to Pope Innocent III to start a new monastic order. They are called the Order of the Lesser Brothers or the Friars Minor, F-R-I-A-R-S for Friars. Right. They have a sister movement called St. Clare, or the Clarices, the poor Clares. So the, there's the poor nuns and then the poor friars. Right? We know them today as the Franciscans. They are a huge missionary group out of the Roman Catholic Church. Right? So if you study something like Southwest American history during the early 1500s to the 1600s, guess who's coming? The Franciscans, along with your conquistadors. Right? Okay. The second one is Dominic. Dominic is a Spanish aristocrat. He was a church lawyer in the Cathedral of Ozma, so he's, a law, he's an educated man. He was set on refuting heresy, so he joined a disciplined monastic movement to study. Right? He, too, appealed to Pope Innocent III, but Pope Innocent III was like, I just did this for Francis. Let's, uh, let's hold off on this one. Right? So he said, I like what you're doing, studying to defeat, defeat heresy. Why don't you go back and just pick one of the other orders that are, already exists? So he's like, okay. Right? But his, popu his uh, popularity became so that he was able then, Innocent III didn't say, okay, you're pretty popular. Let's go ahead and start an order underneath you. They are called the Order of the Preachers or the Dominicans. Now they don't, the Franciscans hold to Benedict's rule. Dominic, the Dominicans, hold to Augustine of Hippo's rules. Augustine set his own community up back in the uh, early 4th century, or excuse me, early 5th century. Right? Not quite as strict as the Benedicts, right? or the Benedictines. Augustine's is more set on study and the study of scripture, and then the study of everything else, the humanities. Right? So the Dominicans follow St. Augustine's rule. Right? They, along with the Jesuits, are the intellectual wings of monasticism. They focus heavily on preaching and studying. They found houses in places like the University of Paris, which is in Paris, France, imagine that, and Oxford University in England, which is in Oxford University. So they were at the very beginning in some of the most prestigious colleges in Europe. Now, at this time, even the University of Paris is kind of small. Now it's a very, very prestigious school. The same with Oxford and Cambridge, right? But they, they go back there a thousand years, okay? The Dominicans 
attract great minds like Albert the Great, we'll talk about him next week, and Thomas Aquinas. They were both Dominican monks. Last but not least, the continued growth of the papacy is done under Innocent III. He is, there he is, he is the most powerful pope to ever hold the throne of St. Peter. All right? Through political intrigue and threat of excommunication, Innocent III was able to make most of Europe vassals of the papacy. Right. What he's doing is setting up things like the English Reformation. Okay. When Henry VIII was like, I don't need you, Pope. I'll be my own Pope because right, I want to marry Anne. Okay. He's the one that sees over the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. That's the same year, by the way, as the English Magna Carta under John. Right. It's a program of reformation. It sets about the doctrine of transubstantiation. It condemns heresies. All right. it gives, the Fourth Lateran Council gives bishops authority to weed out heresy in his diocese by any means necessary. All right. By any means necessary. Usually that's physical. I'm going to torture you to death or I'm going to burn you at the stake. Right? Innocent III makes sure that every cathedral has schools in it for both the rich and the poor, so he holds up Leo IX's and Charlemagne's ideas. Right? He says that the clergy have to abstain from theater, games, and hunting. So basically he takes all the fun out of life. No, he wasn't. He then has, says that any new relics that come into the church have to have papal approval. And then he does this really horribly sad thing where he says Muslims and Jews living in Christian lands had to wear distinctive clothing and markings. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Well, guess what? There's nothing new under the sun on that one, is it? That's within the last hundred years. Okay. Priests could not charge congregants for the price of their communion. That one always makes me laugh. That one always makes me laugh. Oh, you want communion today? All right, well, that'll be, you know, two shekels for the bread and the wine. All right. Innocent says, nope, can't do that. But his big thing, and this is what we're going to end on, is that the church will be one flock, under one shepherd. Now, here's the flock. All of Europe, including kings and queens. One shepherd doesn't mean Jesus. One shepherd means the Pope. All right? One, one flock, all of Europe, controlled by who? The Pope. And Innocent III sets that up. So that's why there's such a struggle with the English Reformation under Henry VIII and others. Okay? That's it. We got through all of it. I kept you five minutes over. I'm sorry. Uh, any questions? Yep. So are, so are Protestants. Protestants are always going through a Reformation as well. But uh, any, big, any big movement theologically within a church is always seen as a reformation. But the thing about these reformations is a lot of the times it's not an actual theological reformation, it's a practical reformation, meaning it's how you do your practice. Right? We won't get into more theological reformations until we look at the actual Protestant reformation and then the 
Catholic Reformation, which is a response to the Protestant Reformation. Right? Okay? Let's pray, then we'll get out of here.